This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Larissa Berendt and this is The Screen Show. Thanks for joining us today. Stories from near and afar and completely beyond today as we meet a London-based executive producer across a slate of some of the best shows on TV right now, including Heartstopper and The Essex Serpent. Plus, local screenwriter Cody Bedford, who's just back from LA, she'll join us and generously share her experience of working in the local industry and Star Wars. Yes, a new series from that galaxy far, far away has just launched. It's simply called Obi-Wan Kenobi and we're very excited to have its director here as well as one of the stars of the series. And that's where we'll start today. They're coming. Stay hidden. Or we will not survive. Leave us alone. When the time comes, he must be trained. Like you trained his father? You still want Kenobi. He's gone. Maybe you've been looking in the wrong places. I want every lowlife and bounty hunter to squeeze him. Deborah Chow is the first female director in Star Wars history. She first joined the franchise on The Mandalorian, where she directed two episodes, and now she's back heading up the latest incarnation, a six-part TV series called Obi-Wan Kenobi, which has just released on Disney+. It stars Ewan McGregor once again as the titular character, as well as Star Wars regulars Hayden Christensen and our very own Joel Edgerton. Now, a disclaimer, information and access around this title was completely limited. In fact, no journalist was given permission to see the series before it released. But when I was offered the opportunity to speak with director Deborah Chow and also the actor Moses Ingram, it was just too good to pass up. And obviously I had questions for them about what it was like to become part of film history. I spoke to Deborah first and started by asking her about her experience entering one of the world's most famous franchises, especially as a woman. Um, yeah, it was definitely not something I ever expected to happen. <laughs> um, you know, and when I went on to Mandalorian, you know, I'd obviously been doing quite a few shows before I, I went on to it. And I think, you know, I, I know it might sound naive, but honestly, I just didn't realize how significant it was, you know, going on to it. And I think it took me a while even to figure out that I would be, you know, in that position. Um, so, you know, it's a, obviously it's a tremendous honor. Uh, and I'm, I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity on, on both shows. How do you feel you were the right fit to take on this very coveted role for this particular series? And what was it that you brought to it to make it fresh and feel like it was yours? Um, yeah, that was, I think, one of the most difficult challenges with this series is that obviously, you know, we have these really iconic, legendary legacy characters and we're in the middle right between two trilogies. Um, but at the same time, you know, we really we needed to tell an original story and have a new vision, you know, at this point in the timeline. Um, so it was really kind of about finding that balance between those two things. But I think one thing that we were really striving to do with the series 
um, was to really first and foremost, have it be a character driven series where it really was trying to have more depth on a character and emotional level. I know you can't give anything away, but can you just give us some context of where this series sits in terms of all the films in the franchise? Yeah, this said we are positioned basically we're 10 years after Revenge of the Sith and we're 10 years before A New Hope. So there's essentially a 20 year period between the two trilogies and we're right in the middle. What was one of the most exciting things about shooting this series? Was it a particular scene, the actors you worked with? What kind of are the things that are the highlights for you? Um, you know, there were there were a lot of things that were pretty amazing on this. You know, I think one thing that was really exciting is that, you know, for a lot of the crew and for the cast and for myself included, we all just had a relationship to these characters already. You know, they personally mean something to us and we care about them. So I've never worked on anything where there was so much love and just so much care from everybody working on it um, for the show. It was really pretty exciting and it felt, it felt pretty special when we were making it. No doubt there were some uh, enormous challenges creatively, logistically. What were some of those that you can share with us? I mean, I think the biggest one is that we obviously made the show during COVID, um, which was <laughs> very complicated. Uh, you know, so so much of our prep was remote, you know, and there were a lot of people that I was working with that I didn't even meet in person until literally we were almost shooting. Uh, you know, and then we went into the series and there still wasn't a vaccine at the beginning. So, you know, obviously trying to make a very ambitious series in the middle of a global pandemic is pretty challenging. Of course, you're working with some superb Hollywood actors, Ewan McGregor, Hayden Christensen, and of course, Australia's own Joel Edgerton. Can you tell us a bit about what it was like working with them? Um, they were wonderful. And honestly, I was incredibly fortunate to have such a great cast. I mean, Ewan, for me, like he is the entire anchor for the show. You know, he just brings such a depth and a sensitivity to everything. And he's just so good. Um, you know, and then Hayden, same thing. And, and they were both, even though they know these characters so well, they were very collaborative. They were very open. And honestly, I was so stoked to have Joel Edgerton. And I, you know, I always thank George for casting him as Uncle Owen. So I was incredibly excited to have Joel um, come back in that role. Uh, thank you, Deborah, so much. Oh, thank you so much. Director Deborah Chow joining me to talk about her experience working on the new Star Wars series, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And now to actor Moses Ingram. I'm sure you'll recognise her from the Netflix hit, The Queen's Gambit. But in this series, she plays a villain called Reva or the third sister. It was really exciting to speak to Moses about working on this. And I began by asking her how it felt becoming part of the Star Wars family, how she found out she got the role and whether it lived up to expectations once she got on the set. Oh, it's exceeded my expectations for sure. When I found out, I was shocked, but I felt super blessed to be joining a franchise that's been around as long as this one has. And um, I think the, the first thing I said to Deborah was, okay, cool. <laughs> that was all I could muster up at the time. Can you describe your character, Reva, or the third sister for us? Who is she and what's her mission? Yeah, she's a subordinate of Darth Vader. She's an inquisitor, um, ruthless, and she'll do whatever she has to do to get the job done, always on the offense and 10 steps ahead. How did you prepare for the role? Um, a lot of it was given to me um, in the writing. You know, the writing was great. The costume sort of forces you to stand a certain way. And then, of course, the training, which gives you confidence in the ability of your body. Um, and all of those things working together really, really gave me who Reva would be. 
We've already mentioned Deborah, of course, amazingly, the first woman to work in the Star Wars franchise as a director, and now, of course, she's doing Obi-Wan. Can you tell us what it was like working with her? Deborah Chow is really wonderful and excellent at what she does. She has a very um, hard job of balancing what was and bringing what is to come. And then also the pressure of pleasing, you know, longer fans and also welcoming new fans. And I feel like she walks that line so gracefully and um, she makes room for everyone else. And she's so free of ego and she works really, really hard. And I think um, she's, she's the heartbeat of the series that people are going to see. How physically demanding was the role of Reva? And perhaps maybe you can describe some of your hardest days on set. Yeah. Um, it required real athleticism, you know, getting in there and getting dirty and getting injured too, you know. Um, the harnesses, after a couple of hours, they really start to dig in <laughs> um, and hurt. There's one day in particular where we'd been working out so much that everything on my body was in excruciating pain, literally. And I think that was the one day that I was near tears. <laughs> I just couldn't, I couldn't, but I could, and I did. Um, so, yeah. I wonder what your reflection is on the increasing number of roles for women that are physically demanding like this one, what it says about um, having women play action heroes as well. I think it's important for the young people watching to see people that look like them doing these crazy, amazing things. I think for so long, you know, the, you know, the, the argument in front of the TV that I would have with my brothers, like, you're not strong enough to do that. You know, you got to be a boy to do that. And it's just not true. It's just not true. You can fight like a girl and still fight like hell all at the same time. So yeah. love it. Will the legacy of Reva continue well into the franchise, do you think? Well, what I know for sure is that there's this six part series that we can get as much Reva as we wanted. And I think that'll be really cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. Actor Moses Ingram, who you can now see in the series Obi-Wan Kenobi, streaming on Disney+. Plus. It was such a joy to speak to both Moses and director Deborah Chow. I hope you'll check out their work. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is The Screen Show on Radio National. Now, if you haven't seen Heartstopper on Netflix, I'm sure you've heard about it or had someone recommend it to you. It's a very joyful coming-of-age, coming-out story made especially for the teen LGBTQ plus community it depicts. But this series can speak to anyone. I love it. And this leads me to our next guest, Patrick Walters, who is the UK-based executive producer of Heartstopper, as well as a bunch of other really popular shows, including The Essex Serpent, a gothic romance with Claire Danes and Tom Hiddleston, Slow Horses, a spy drama starring Gary Oldman and Kristen Scott Thomas, and another show I really love called State of the Union, which is written by Nick Hornby. 
Patrick works as part of a highly creative team at Seesaw Films who have offices in Sydney and London and they are such high achievers as well as all those TV shows I've just mentioned. They're behind Oscar winning and nominated films like The King's Speech, The Power of the Dog and Lion. Patrick happens to be in Sydney at the moment and I couldn't resist bringing him in to find out how he thinks the industry is faring at the moment and what inspires him when it comes to stories for the screen. Patrick Walters, welcome to The Screen Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I wonder if we could just start by finding out what drew you to want to work in the screen industry in the first place. Oh, wow. I mean, I always had a very uh, clear ambition and passion to want to work in film initially. And when I left university, I yeah went for interviews for internships at um, film studios. And I, I was lucky enough to work at Warner Brothers. And I knew I wanted to do something creative in film. And I started working in film development. And then the great boom of like, you know, prestige television happened. Uh, and I, w- I went and worked at Seesaw doing TV development. And yeah, and that was my journey, really. Well, I want to come back to this great age of television, but I wonder just starting off, obviously, as a producer, you're picking up projects. What what do you find over time has drawn you to a story, especially because we're going to look at quite the diversity in your body of work. But what do you think is at the heart of what piques your interest? I think it's always characters, really. I think you remember brilliant films and TV series that you've watched years ago because you identify or relate or love the characters in them. And so, um, you know, on something like Heartstopper, I just really, really responded to the characters on the page in the graphic novel. Um, and that was my sort of entry point into going, ah, how could this be a brilliant TV series that, that people would love? Uh, I want to get back to Heartstopper a little later on too, because I have to say it's okay. one of my favourites as well. Nice. <laughs> but there's obviously the stories that come your way, but I think something that you see with a company like Seesaw is that you also invest in people. There are particular directors or writers that you you identify and start to support and have a stronger creative relationship with. And I wonder mm-hmm. what it is that you see in a creative person that makes you think, yep, there's somebody that we want to invest in in the long term? Oh, it's a really hard thing to pin down in words. I think I've always just really enjoyed working with the creative people I've been lucky enough to meet. And you sort of click with people when you talk about how you could make a television show and you're speaking to a kind of prospective writer or director. And it's just something in the kind of shared spirit of collaboration. You know, so our director on Heartstopper or on The Essex Serpent, you know, they're just brilliant, lovely people who I I really respect and admire. Um, And if you've got that as the foundation, I think then you can go on and create something really special together. From your perspective as a producer, I want to now go back to one of the things you've already raised. What do you see as the strengths and opportunities of this era we're living in where television is so prestige? It's really exciting. I think at the moment it feels like there's so much TV. So the question is, how do you make something at that high level, if you're lucky enough to be a TV producer, that really cuts through? And so what I try and focus on on my slate is going, how do we tell a story that feels like it's not been told before, that has characters that feel like they've kind of been underrepresented to this point? Um, And so I love uh, shows that, you know, celebrate the underdog and come at a a world or story from a point of view that feels left of centre. And I think that's, audiences really respond to those sorts of shows now because 
they're going up. I've got so little time compared to how much stuff there is potentially that I could be watching. So what do I want to watch? I was going to ask you about that because, of course, the impact of streamers on the industry has been beyond profound. Um, from yeah. your from your perspective, what has that change been? And, and do you see that there are some challenges? Obviously, a lot was made about the drop in the audience for Netflix, but, of course, we've seen a proliferation of streamers. So from your perspective as a producer, what are the opportunities and challenges in that environment? I think you've got to come at it from a place of love for the story and for the show that you're making, whether you're whether it's going to sit on a streamer or a more kind of traditional broadcaster. Um, so it's sort of, there is lots of opportunity to get brilliant directors and brilliant actors that can drive, you know, views to the show. But if it's not doing something different and if it's not saying something about the world that we live in, I think there's such a greater chance that it just gets lost in the mix. Um, when I started producing, it was sort of a different world where people would, you know, they would have their one show that was the hit show that people would be watching Mad Men or Breaking Bad or The Sopranos, whatever it was. And you really felt like the majority of a television audience was watching shows, those shows. Whereas now I think people have their specific favourites and you're, you're, you're much more likely to be watching something that someone else isn't watching. So, yeah, it's harder to stand out, I think. There's um, a wonderful way in which Seesaw Films works across US, the UK and Australia. As you're trying to steer that ship, what are the, again, the opportunities and challenges of having such a, a kind of global or large reach for what you're doing? I think it, it feels exciting um, because we're sort of, we've got our offices in London and in Sydney. And so there feels like there's a kind of, you've got greater access to all the amazing talents in, in both places. But I think it's always about being really specific in what you, what you choose to develop and, and want to make is that you, you kind of, you want a show that's set in the UK to be really specific to that location or, or likewise in Australia to be really specific to the world that it is. And I think then you get a global audience response to that specificity, even if it's not, you know, the country that they're watching in, they can see something like Heartstopper is, it, you know, has a really specific eye for detail and it feels like a real world. And I think you've got to, you've got to protect that because that's that's of real value to audiences now. They want to they want to see something authentic. I want to actually talk about Heartstopper now. So thank you for that wonderful segue back to it. I already mentioned it's <laughs> no one problem. of the favourite things I've watched recently. It's this wonderful <laughs> oh, team. nice. Yeah, it's a wonderful team comedy, coming of age, coming out series. What was it about the show that made you decide to back it? I know you mentioned the graphic novel, but obviously it's come to life so beautifully. What was the process you undertook to do that? Well, it was, for us, it was all about making a show that, celebrated kind of young queer identity and was trying to represent a younger LGBTQ plus audience by saying, look, this is a show. It's about teenagers who are sort of going through the normal things that teenagers do, trying to find out what their identity is and, um, you know, following their passions and excitements. And it just struck us that there were no LGBTQ plus shows that had done that for a younger audience. And so we were thinking, you know, we really wanted sort of 12, 13, 14, 15 year old teenagers to watch this and, and feel represented by it because it felt like there hadn't been a show that had done that. So it sort of felt really important. 
And I should just point out, I'm actually not in that demographic and I love it as well. And (laughs) we recently had the director, Sophie Hyde, on and she picked it as one of her must-watch shows as well. So there seems to be a wonderful appeal. I mean, there's a lovely balance between trauma and pain and joy and hopefulness. It must have been very hard to get that right. But what have been the audience reaction to Heartstopper? It's been such a whirlwind since it's it's come out just over a, a month ago. And it feels like a global audience have taken it to their hearts, really, which is amazing because it felt like a really small show when we were making it. We made it with a lot of love, but we were in a kind of abandoned school in Slough, which wasn't the most glamorous location, <laughs> with a lot of new <laughs> actors who were on who were on film sets for their first time and kind of going, wow, this is this is crazy. So we all just sort of banded together and tried to pour as much love into the making of it as possible and so I think to feel like loads of people are seeing it now and it really means something to them and you've got stories of um, you know young people using scenes in it to come out to their parents it's just amazing it's it's really blown all of our minds collectively everyone who worked on it we're just giddy can we expect another season I'm asking for a friend You can expect two more seasons. In fact, we just got a great news from Netflix. They want to do two more. Oh, so, that's wonderful. Um, exciting times ahead. Yeah. Yeah, great. Oh, well, that's, that's already made me happy. Thank you. Good. <laughs> the, <laughs> me uh, too. <laughs> the other show that I have found quite mesmerising and is on a completely different end of the spectrum in so many ways in terms of content is The Essex Serpent, the mystery drama yeah. starring Claire Danes and Tom Hiddleston. You talked about the ability to attract big names stars. It's primarily set in Essex where mythology and science meet to try and explain the reported appearance of a large serpent. It's hard to think of something that could be so different to Heartstopper. So could you talk a little bit by comparison about how you came to this story and how you brought it to life? Well, it's based on a brilliant novel by a novelist, Sarah Perry. And uh, you read this book and it's just uh, full of ideas and feels so passionate and exciting. And we read it quite a long time ago, actually, as you saw in 2016. And we, we optioned it at that point and have been developing it. And it's so amazing to have seen it kind of come alive at this level with an amazing female director, Clara Bernard, who's just a fantastic auteur of British independent cinema and stars like Claire and Tom. It's, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's got such a mysterious and moody tone and I swear I actually feel colder when I watch all those scenes out on the moor and they're all rugged up. What are your reflections on what this series has achieved and what has been the audience reaction to it? Oh, it's been great to see the audience reaction to it. I think there's a kind of, yeah, people are watching and going, wow, I haven't seen Tom or Claire in roles like this. Uh, And so that feels really exciting. But also I think it's a show that is about the big ideas. You know, it's kind of got this sort of intellectual curiosity and it's about kind of the human condition in that people in this village in Essex are very scared of this mythical creature that they think is in the water. Um, But that's kind of allegorical in some ways. It's about the kind of the fear that all of us have being human in that we can't explain these sort of scary big changes that are happening all around us. So it's been brilliant to see that, yeah, commented on. Another show that's in your stable that I had a very strong reaction to two seasons and I just loved it. And in a way, it's a, again a contrast in, in ways because, you know, something like particularly the Essex Serpent, it's it's big names, it's, it's big vistas and scenes, it's costumes, it's a, a different time. Um, State of the Union 
was in a way the opposite. It's two, yeah. each season is two people on their way to marriage counselling and you just see them have that meeting before they go in to do their session. And in a way, again, it's a, it feels like it's a, it's the tiniest of worlds, but it's a, it's a series that kind of has made its way into a lot of people's hearts. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you came to that material and, and what the response has been? Uh, yeah, I love State of the Union. I think, it, yeah, it totally is that. That as a show is is totally born from uh, Nick Hornby's brilliance, really, because it, it was an idea that he had and he brought to another exec producer at Seesaw called Jamie Lawrenson, who he'd worked with before on a show we did called Love Nina. Um, and it's just exactly, I think, what Nick wanted to write. And he has such a sort of... Um, comedic sparkly brilliance to everything that he does and so to to read these you know 10 minute scripts that were coming in for the these episodes that were just about a marriage was just incredibly exciting and I think because of Nick's brilliance on the page a brilliant team were, was assembled around around him for both seasons with Stephen Frears directing and the brilliant casts across both seasons of it. It was such a reminder of the power of tight good writing and really, you didn't exactly, need bells and yeah. whistles with it. That's completely right. Yeah, it's all Nick Hornby, that. The other show that I just wanted to give a shout out to, because I really enjoyed this show. It took me a while to kind of really understand what was going on, but I loved the characters and only didn't understand it because it was a mystery and there was lots going on, not because there was anything wrong with the writing. Um, yeah. On Apple TV, good reviews, Gary Oldman, Kristen Scott Thomas, who I could watch in anything, um, yeah. about a group of dysfunctional MI5 agents. And of course, I'm talking about slow horses. What can yes. you share with us about that? Because I thought that was quite a brilliant bit of television as well. Yeah, that's been a really brilliant ride. We've been working on that at Seesaw for many years. We had, um, uh, yeah, we'd loved the books and, and had optioned them. Again, it's based on this brilliant series of novels by Mick Heron. And it was something that Apple... Uh, came to and just really responded to. And uh, it's one of their first big UK productions. And so to feel their weight of support behind it that really allowed and helped us get Gary Oldman, Kristen Scott Thomas, Jack Loudon, this amazing cast um, ha has been a real thrill. And I think it's, yeah, it's, it's fantastic to see it go out and to see people really love it. Um, I think it's it's such fun. It's such a great series. There's a bit of a thread in some of the processes you've talked about, and that is that they're based on adaptations from books. And yeah. uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the the challenges of that. Yeah, I love book-to-screen adaptation. It's, it's sort of what I've been working on across all of these projects for these last years. And I think it feels like it sort of gives you a benchmark of what you feel the creative ambition of the series needs to be. So you've got this sort of Bible of sorts where you could, you know, if you get stuck because it's a long process trying to adapt, uh, you know, and make any, any kind of television, you can go back to the book and go, what about this? Uh, did I love, you know, when I first read it and, and what was that feeling that made me think, yes, we've got to make this. And so often when you're stuck years on from having first read the book, you go back to the book and it really gives you, it guides you through and gets you out of whatever pickle you're in at that point. Um, so yeah, I, I, lo I love that way of, of making TV. We've been through a couple of, uh, I guess, um, my personal faves um, that are on your slate, but I wonder, and maybe this is a pretty difficult question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When you look back on the things you've worked in, is there a, an achievement that you're most proud of? 
Oh, wow. I mean, I think I'm in the eye of the storm on the release of Heartstopper at the moment. And that's something that I'd sort of pushed forward myself and was sort of a, a project that I was kind of leading on in that kind of creative producing sense. So it has really, if I'm honest, just been the most extraordinary experience of my life. I, I, I feel so blessed and privileged to have been a part of bringing that story to the screen because I think it's it's so needed and it's and it's so celebratory and I hope that it you know that it stands the test of time and and puts a bit of good out in the world so I think as much as I love all of the stuff we've talked about I would have to say Heartstopper. <laughs> well, I know I feel like I just asked you to, to pick your favourite child, but um, just yeah. picking up yeah. on something that you said earlier, which is, of course, looking for characters that we haven't seen on the, the screen before. As a producer, I wonder if you could perhaps share with us your reflections on the impact of more diverse creatives on content and storytelling in the screen industry. Sure. I mean, I think what the world is saying is that authenticity across everything is so important and so I think you have to come come to to making these sorts of shows that have a kind of you know progressive core at them being rigorous about whether you're being authentic or not and I think it's about representing uh you know all different sorts of people that are out there and you kind of can't do that if you're sort of going oh yeah we'll do x type of story but the person who's doing that story isn't from that world or, or doesn't live that reality. And I think when when you do it in the right way, where you have, for example, on something like Heartstopper, you know, a queer creative team who are feeling that story because it represents them and they love it, then you get to put that love into the show authentically. And I really believe that then works its way out into the finished product. Now, we often ask creatives who are on the show like yourself for advice for people who are aspiring to work in the screen industry. And I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who have that aspiration, who look at what you've yeah. achieved enviously. So what advice <laughs> do you have for anyone who's listening who'd like a job like yours? I think you just have to absolutely love it. Um, and I know that sounds sort of easy to say, but it's a tough world and it's very difficult to, you know, whether you're in writing, directing, producing, whatever it is you're doing to get stuff to happen because there's so much sort of, there's so many obstacles in the way of making anything. And if you make something, it's sort of a miracle of lots of events coming together and working out. So I think along the way, you just have to have such a kind of sense of, I love this. And even if it's hard, I'm going to keep pushing on it and yeah, just keep going even when it feels impossible. I think just talking to you about some of these shows, you can feel that passion coming through. Patrick Walters, Good. thank you so much for spending some time with us on The Screen Show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Patrick Walters, executive producer at Seesaw Films, who oversees some of the best stuff on your screens right now from TV shows like Heartstopper, The Essex Serpent and Slow Horses to films like The Power of the Dog. It was really great to meet Patrick and I can't wait to see what comes next from Seesaw Films. Okay, well, someone else making waves in the industry is local screenwriter Cody Bedford. I've been following Cody's career for a while now, watching her fantastic writing on series like Mystery Road, Tropo, Squinters and Firebite, as well as All My Friends Are Racist, which won an Actor Award for Best Short Form Comedy. Cody has just returned to Australia from LA and I have her here with me now to hear more about her background and her work. Cody Bedford, welcome to The Screen Show. Thank you for having me. I thought we might start just by, you know, First Nations way, in a way, hearing from you about 
where you grew up and who were the people that really influenced your worldview, your sense of humour, your sense of social justice, your sense of culture? I'm a Jaru woman from the East Kimberley, so Halls Creek area, which is right on the, I guess, kind of near the border of uh, Northern Territory. And I grew up on Yamaji land in uh, Geraldton, Western Australia, which is, uh, I guess, five hours from Perth. And so between Geraldton and Halls Creek, there are a lot of bus rides, which took two and a half days uh, to go back to country and a lot of time to think. Uh, a lot of time to uh, get very car sick, which I always used to do. But I guess I was very fortunate. I had my family, which is my mum is white Australian. My dad, of course, is Jaru. They both have very specific senses of humour. I just took all that on. I'm a sponge. I'm still a sponge to this day. I just, I operate with people around me just observing, which I guess is what writers do. I hope what good writers do. I was going to say it does sound like something a good writer would do. (laughs) (laughs) Just constantly observing my surroundings, I guess because I was always travelling. And so um, I spent a lot of time uh, travelling around Western Australia, remote Western Australia, go to um, places with my dad who worked for ATSIC at the time and we'd always be travelling to communities and I just would – be constantly moving and constantly observing, which I think has impacted me today. You are, of course, I've introduced you as one of our great storytellers on screen, but what were the stories that inspired you growing up? Did you did you hear a lot of stories around you that you were engaged with where you were a reader? Like where, where did you get this love of story from? I think my family just were always, like it's that thing of cup of teas, yarning, I would just overhear the adults yarning stories of, I guess, nostalgic stories of their youth, and I'd just soak that up. And I just remember writing it down and um, making short stories out of it. I still do that to this day. Like if I observe something, I make a short story out of it. And so I guess I just had a love of stories on both sides collecting those nostalgic moments of mum and dad's youth and my uncles and my aunties and my nan and my pop. Oh, yeah, just writing them into stories. But also I had a vivid imagination. I did grow up as an only child, but I had a lot of cousins around me. And, of course, me being quite an introvert, I needed my space. So I just remember always being out the back, bouncing a tennis ball, just making up stories in my head just to have a little break from (laughs) break from life probably and my cousins screaming around so I wasn't quite a reader which is funny I in later life I love books but it was me more generating the stories in my head because I'd just be overhearing yarns um later as a teenager I grew to love television like I love TV shows, particularly I've been on record saying this several times and people are kind of bored of it but Buffy really impacted my life because it was the first time, one, I saw a female protagonist kick ass on screen. Um, I loved that. But I thought, oh, I want to be Buffy. But then I realised someone wrote Buffy and that was my first introduction to screenwriting. And so I just studied Buffy scripts constantly as a teenager and I knew from then I wanted to be a screenwriter, which is kind of absurd for a, like, 
a 13-year-old kid living in Geraldton, like regional Western Australia. How on earth can I be a screenwriter living in this place where the industry is fishing and farming? Um, so I still pinch myself. I ask myself like every few weeks, like, how did I get here? I still don't know. Well, that's a bit of a disappointment because I was going to ask you that very question. I first of all have to say there is nothing wrong with Buffy the Vampire Slayer right now. So if anyone wants to take you up on that, I'm right there beside you. But I love this idea that there you are in this world where you would not have known anybody doing this kind of work and this is the dream you have for yourself and here you are doing it. It's so bizarre and I don't know if it's a spirituality thing or ancestor thing. Like I just knew. I always knew I was going to be a screenwriter, even when I was off on my journey, like working in government departments or working uh, as a journalist, which, you know, informed my pathway into screenwriting. But it just, I just knew it was a sense of knowing. And still to this day, I just don't know why I had that sense of knowing, even as a teenager, like I said, I'm going to be a screenwriter. (laughs) Well, of the wonderful things that that's led to, of course, there is your body of work, which I want to talk about in a minute. But it's also meant that what you've done has made it so much more achievable and an option for the people who are coming after you that, you know, other First Nations people can sit there and look at you and go, actually, that is something I can do. I might not have thought of that otherwise, but that's what I want to do. And I was wondering just from your perspective, as you've come into the industry, especially because you've been one of the, you know, first most prolific screenwriters from our community, who have been the the supports or the mentors, the people who've been critical in terms of your own pathway for you? Like, uh, unfortunately, like, it's such a general answer, but we in the Australian industry, the writers in the Australian industry are just so supportive of each other. So it only takes one champion. And I remember I started out really at the bottom and the, traditionally the bottom is note-taking in a room where you sit there, you shut up, and you just take all the notes of the writers brainstorming and their ideas onto the board. Every now and then I'd pipe up because I'm a very cheeky person and go, no, that doesn't work. The, uh, can you imagine this? the note-taker telling these senior writers that doesn't work? Yeah, that was me. And I think someone recognised that, and that was, person was Michaela O'Brien in the Mystery Road TV Writers' Room Season 1. And it just so happened there was a space for a script that they couldn't get a writer for, and so Michaela championed me to basically write this script uh, with the support of Bunya, um, a prolific uh, production company who've gone on to do amazing things. But this, I think, was their first TV show, correct me if I'm wrong. Once I got that champion in McKaylee, my career kind of took off. All you needed was that one credit and to prove you could write. And ever since then, I've been so fortunate to just get great job offers and meaty Australian stories because ultimately I want to tell Australian stories. I'm very passionate about Australian stories and their mark on, I guess, our culture as a whole, as Australian people and Indigenous characters and Indigenous stories included in that and at that level. So I am very lucky I had McKaylee, but all through the course I just seem to be really supported by the writers around me. So even in Series 2 of Mystery Road, there was Blake Ashford, 
he really helped me. I always go into a writer's room going, what can I learn out of this? How can I skill up? Basically, what can I steal from the more experienced writers and how they operate? And I take out basically skills from each one of these kind of legends in our screen industry. I have a harder time imagining you taking the notes and not saying anything than imagining you might have piped in from time to time, given how creative you are. (laughs) I was so cheeky and you don't usually do that. But of course, my personality, I come from a very, the women in my family, my mob, a very loud mouth. And I remember talking to my auntie not that long ago. I was complaining about something. I was feeling down and going, oh, I just, I'm sick of speaking up. And she just said to me, it was such a profound moment. I can't believe even at 36, I'm having these profound moments. But she turned to me and said, Katie, you got a voice, you got to use it. And so that's my motto this year. (laughs) What a great motto. I know. My auntie's still growling me. I was going to ask you, you mentioned the dynamic of being in a writer's room. And I was wondering if you've worked on shows like Mystery Road and Squinters where you would have been one of a diverse number of writers in a room and then others like All My Friends Are Racist, which is very much a First Nations-driven story as well. And I was wondering, what's your reflection on what it means to be a First Nations person in a writer's room and what are the different dynamics you've experienced? I mean, I'm going to be my cheeky self here and say we are the best storytellers in the world. We just, I call it yarn carrying. We're just good yarn carriers and just good at telling a yarn. Um, I I was actually talking about this with writer friends yesterday in the room I was in and I'm a very what we call an inside-out writer where that is to say I come from characters and I go outward. I, I just love exploring character psychology. I'm very good at reading people, which I think makes a lot of writers good writers. I love, I guess, the question of what makes a person do that. And so for me, that's what I bring to a writer's room and trying to sort of unlock the character. Whereas, you know, there are other people I know, I'm very aware my weakness is I'm not good at like the big thematic plot points. I just leave that to other writers, like the action scenes or even getting a director to come in and make that more dynamic. But that's what exactly what I love about writers' rooms, about making a TV show is the collaboration. I really feed off the collaboration. I don't want to be the one to do it all myself. I love all the ideas being put on the table and me contributing a little bit to that. And I think we are so lucky in the time we're living in because finally Indigenous stories are kind of moving on from that looking back at the past. We're kind of now looking forward where we get to play with a bit of genre, where we get to play with a bit of comedy. It's not all just trauma putting on screen. That's not to say those stories aren't important. They absolutely were and are still and the reason why I can tell like silly stories like all my friends are racist is because those stories were done beforehand and sort of I guess this new generation of writers and storytellers are just get to be their cheeky selves on screen and I love that and I love playing with that and um, just really fortunate that we get the opportunity to kind of drive that 
of course there's a long way to go because still I get pitched these like colonial stories, colonial ideas, or, you know, I'll be really honest, in the last six months I have been told to black up my dialogue, which is quite shocking by uninformed producers. But I just am very aware that we are moving in the right direction and I've, I've got to hold on to that otherwise I'll just become a jaded writer and I'm not ready for that. I'll leave that to my 50s. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm struck by two things listening to your, your observation about how we carry story with us reminds me that we're carrying a 65,000 plus tradition of storytelling so it's no wonder it's so inherent and listening to you talk too about that reflection of how on the screen particularly First Nations stories have expanded from a very narrow place of storytelling to a very expansive one does remind me there's a a mirror to that in in the writing of fiction you look at now we have First Nations writers writing speculative fiction science fiction there is kind of no no barriers I I felt that your series All My Friends Are Racist was one of those moments when we could see beyond the past into the future so I'm interested that you made that observation too and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that wonderful series, how you got the idea, how you brought it to life and why you thought audiences were ready for it. I never thought audiences, I always freak out about what audiences think because I guess going into a writer's room, it's something I guess a team leader would think of. Producers, their job is to think of of audiences but my job as a writer, that's kind of the last thing on my mind. I just want to make the characters as, you know, authentic and the stories as interesting as possible. But I I freaked out the day before all my friends of ra- a racist dropped on iview because I went, will people get this? Like it's quite out there and it's quite outrageous. And I was okay with the audience either loving and hating it or hating it. And actually that's what it did. And it made me realize, oh, okay, I don't want to tell safe stories I want to push it and push outrageous characters just to just to see and I, I'm so fortunate that I can but in terms of bringing that story together it came from a very talented young writer named Enoch Malangi and they're so I think they're not even aware of how talented they are. As a 20-year-old came up with this idea with the initiative of Raw, which was run by this fabulous producer, uh, Liliana Munoz. And Enoch had never written screen before and the idea was just about two best friends taking on a city, of course, in a very Gen Z way. And then I was brought on basically to see if I could help Enoch. And I'm very passionate about knowing the person I'm going to work with and making sure we we match not only personality but, like, same values, same in terms of storytelling, same, like, with it, the same tone, but that we get each other because, you know, it's basically a marriage. You you work on this thing for several years and you need to make sure that you're on the same page. Otherwise, I've seen many shows that, have made it into production and still there are people not on the same page and it, you can see it on screen. And so when I met Enoch, it was just meant to be. We were actually, we became the characters that we were writing in terms of just 
having that deep connection. And we ended up just writing the whole series together. I think our credits are co-writers and it was a true co-writing experience and sort of having Enoch as a young person. I mean, I became the auntie, fit into the auntie role and I'm writing that and um I told Liliana, I said, look, I want to I want to do the show running thing. I want to make this model because of the criticism I have of the Australian industry is we don't actually use our screenwriters properly, not like the rest of the world where they have them on set and have them feeding into creative decisions and working closely with the director. We don't do that. We have a different kind of model here and I don't think it works. But I asked Liliana, the producer, if we could do that. She was so supportive. And it was one of the most creatively rewarding experiences because Enoch, myself, Liliana and Bjorn, who we brought on as director, Bjorn Stewart, uh, were all just on the same page, all feeding in. And then when the actors came in, Davey and Tully, um, them feeding into their characters and just constantly we wanted to make the scripts better. They were never, they were always evolving, even on shoot day when, you know, Dave would come to me and go, can I try this line? I'm like, yeah, go for it. I love it when actors take ownership of their character and Bjorn was just so stylish in the way he was directing. It was so rewarding and it was only a little web series, but the thing I'm proud of most is that the tone is so clear and I think that's because we all came in from a collaborative point of view, all the heads of department fed in, were empowered, and we just made basically the shit out of this show. You do get that warmth and collaboration sense from from the show. It's such a triumph. And for another very important reason, which is it puts people on the screen who hadn't been there before, and that is really important for the people that it represents. I can't believe I'm running out of time with you because I feel like I could just keep talking and talking. (laughs) But one thing I did want to ask you that I was curious about, you've spent time in LA working there and you're back in Australia now. I was wondering what the experience was like for you. It's always a big thing to go overseas and for all the things you learn, it's that thing of being somewhere that's not home and it makes you see home differently. And I was wondering from your times overseas, what have you learned about yourself in Australia? Um, that's so interesting. You, are, I only just got back from LA last week and it was a relief being home. Every time I go overseas, it makes me more passionate to tell Australian stories and I totally believe that Australian stories, Indigenous stories can work everywhere universally because at our core selves, like we're human, we're driven by like the need of love. I know that sounds so, I was going to say wanky and I, I just did say wanky, sorry, but that's what we're driven by. I, my experiences in LA, I go over there basically to learn the processes of how to run a show, but also meeting producers, um, networking. It's quite overwhelming because they're all about cultivating their image. They often have a, like 17 people in a room and I that really freaks me out because I guess I'm used to the safe space of the Australian writers' room. But I just want to learn their structure because I think there is something about the way not only how they run shows but run writers' rooms, run the whole production and they, I mean, let's face it, Americans are very good at running TV shows. Like that's probably 90% 
of shows that I watch. And so I just wanted to take those skills and bring it back to Australia and, of course, share what I learned over there. Cody, it's been such a privilege to have you on the screen show today. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully I haven't bored everyone. You have not done that. In fact, I'm just fangirling all the more now. (laughs) Thank you. Screenwriter Cody Bedford. If you've watched Mystery Road, All My Friends Are Racist, Squinters, Firebite or Troppo, then you've witnessed her fantastic work and I know there's much more to come. Well, it's almost time to go, but just before we do, a quick mention of a new film releasing in cinemas this week, Mothering Sunday. The film is set in post-World War I England and comes to us from French writer-director Eva Hoosen. It stars Australian actor Odessa Young as housemaid Jane Fairchild, who works in a grand manor owned by Mr and Mrs Niven, played by Colin Firth and Olivia Colman. Jane is having a passionate affair with one of the neighbours, Paul, played by the Crown's Josh O'Connor, despite him being engaged to another woman. With a doomed romance at its centre and Paul having returned from the front line, there's a melancholy tinge to everything here and the sedate pace matches this. But don't get me wrong, the plot rewards you as consequences play out and everything comes together. And with exquisite production design and this standout cast, Odessa Young is absolutely luminous on the screen. I have to say, your attention is completely held and I would definitely recommend you see it. Mothering Sunday is in cinemas now. And that's it for the Screen Show this week. I'm Larissa Berendt and very sadly, this is my last week hosting the show. For now anyway, I hope to be back as I've really loved immersing myself in the world of film and television and bringing you interviews with such inspiring creatives over the past month. I think you can tell how excited I've been and I want to thank the Screen Show's producer, Sarah Corbett, for all she's done to help me as I've been in this new role. And thank you for listening. Jason DeRosso is still away for another month, so from next week you'll be in the safe hands of Sunil Badami. Sunil lectures in film studies at the University of Technology in Sydney and is also a writer and broadcaster, and I know he's very excited to be joining you next week. And don't forget, you can continue to hear me every week on Radio National's Speaking Out program, but from the screen show, it's bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.